regarding the January 6, 2021 cap attack on the Capitol. I'm Scott Kuhn. The introduction to this episode was provided by California Representative Zoe Lofgren, who's testifying with regard to the testimony offered by Pat Cipollone. I, I have to keep making sure not to say Pat Cipollone. Pat Cipollone on Friday with regard to, you know, basically eight and a half hours of testimony, which, with breaks, works out to around seven hours of testimony. So, a full day's worth of testimony for the former White House counsel. And so, even though there's been a a slight pause in the hearings with the break, there have been any number of developments since the Hutchinson hearing, so I'd like to set the stage for the next two hearings, the final two scheduled hearings of the January 6th committee to get us caught up. Um, Now, I've been doing the numbers intermittently. I haven't been doing it every episode lately, just because they've been so frequent, just basically in response to the hearings. As a matter of fact, I haven't done the numbers since episode 18 on June 23rd. So... Now it's a good time to get caught up uh, because there's been some activity. So here are the numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 838 individuals charged, an increase of 6 since the last tally. There have been a total of 383 indictments, an increase of 1 since the last tally. 5 deceased, an increase of 1, we'll get to him in a moment. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 331 convictions, an increase of 10 since the last tally. And 163 sentencings, an increase of 12. Now, I've mentioned this before, but if you go to Sedition Track, you'll see that they only have the number of deceased defendants at 4, not 5. I believe I've mentioned this before. This discrepancy between my numbers and their numbers is because I count Christopher Stanton, Georgia, the banker who committed suicide in the basement of his home in Alpharetta, Georgia, confusingly for someone with the surname of Georgia, on Saturday, July 9th, January 9th, 2021. So, but yeah, four or five, depending upon who you count, defendants have died. 
uh, before they could basically get their day in court or plead guilty or certainly get sentenced. The latest defendant to die is 58-year-old Michael John Lopatic Sr., a former Marine who's part of a large cluster of defendants from southeast Pennsylvania. Uh, he's from an uh, area near Lancaster. And I'd already mentioned him uh, a little bit in Season 1, Episode 8, The Worst. Lopatic, who was assigned the hashtag PTSD Puncher and Bloody Marine Hat uh, by online sedition hunters, was accused of attacking multiple officers and of stealing a body camera, which he basically tossed in the trash on the way home, so a grand total of seven charges in his indictment, which he shares with co-defendants. So this was that he was involved in that big melee around the death of Roseanne Boylan. Some officers tried to, to assist her, and they, you know, the, the mob took advantage of this, uh, including allegedly dragging an officer into the crowd. Now, court documents show that Lopatic went to D.C with the intent, allegedly, to commit violence. He posted the words, Call to Arms, on his social media feed on November 4th, 2020. And on January 1st, he posted this, quote, Assemble on the Capitol January 6th, 2021. United we stand, we go forth and fight, end quote. Lopatic also loved to hunt pheasants, and in the lead-up to the January 6th attack, he had a habit of taking pictures of the birds that he had shot and giving them the nicknames of Democrats that he had wanted to kill. Had he gone to trial, Lopatic would have faced a, a maximum sentence of 21 years and 6 months. So, you know, he's a fanatic who clearly came prepared for violence. He assaulted police, at least two different officers, assisting in some of the, the you know, bloodiest sort of dogpile attacks, pulling an officer into the crowd, and he gets quite bloody in the process, which is why he got the, the hashtag bloody marine hat. He's wearing a marine hat. He's wearing some kind of t-shirt about um, how Democrats give him stupid Democrats and PTSD, some kind of uh, stupid dad joke there. On February 2nd, 2021, uh, Lopatic posted to his Facebook account that Quote, it wasn't a riot at the Capitol, it was a crusade against baby murderers. End quote. So Lopatic died of a heart attack on July 3rd, leaving behind a wife, five children, and two grandchildren. Now, although Congress itself is theoretically on Independence Day break, uh, it would seem that the work of the January 6th committee continues unabated in advance of the next public hearing on Tuesday, July 2nd, at 1 p.m. The final hearing, at least the final one that's been scheduled, will be held this week on Thursday, July 14th, allegedly uh, in prime time, so I believe 8 p.m., if that's been consistent with the only other prime time hearing. So, Bastille Day, bit of a historical irony there, right? Uh, French revolutionaries storming capital on Bastille Day. And, you know, this hearing, of course, for counter-revolutionaries, reactionaries, stormed the capital on January 6th. 
Now, in a very interesting turn of events, Pat Cipollone, former White House counsel under Trump, as I referenced at the, the outset of the show, was issued a subpoena by the committee on June 29th and came in to testify before the committee on Friday, July 8th. So that is a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, we've seen, for example, Hutchinson, right? I mean, it took weeks, apparently, from the subpoena being issued to her actually being served with the subpoena, you know, theoretically, like they announced it, and then um, she didn't actually get served with it until weeks later, apparently. So this subpoena, boom, gets issued, and he's, he's testifying within a week. So that is pretty remarkable. And Cipollone appeared for eight and a half hours. Again, seven hours if you don't count breaks. So whichever metric you want to use, basically all day long. Now, we're probably going to have to wait until at least Tuesday for any kind of glimpse into his testimony. But I want to re redirect you again to the what I, you know, the recording I played at the, the outset, uh, in the very first part, which I didn't play, um, Lofgren says that Cipollone didn't contradict any other witnesses, uh, but also said that Cipollone wasn't present for every event he was questioned about, uh, and there were some instances in which he was unable to recall certain matters. Um, but again, interesting part here, Cipollone's testimony did provide new details of interest to the committee, and he answered, quote, a wide variety of questions. So this wasn't Pat Cipollone trying to invoke attorney-client privilege or executive privilege or the Fifth Amendment for eight and a half hours. This is Pat Cipollone, more or less. Again, she reiterated, testifying voluntarily, which, again, is consistent with Hutchinson's testimony, which, of course, raises some questions, right? I mean, had Cipollone come to the committee before and said, look, I really want to testify, I need some cover, um, you know, what can you do? Or was the, the testimony from Hutchinson so compelling that Cipollone is like, you know what, fine, I have to come in now. We don't know. I mean, it could be either scenario, play it out whichever way you think, you know, your, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I actually kind of believe like the first scenario, Cipollone probably realized he was going to have to testify at some point because, again, you know, he could have gone the Navarro route. He could have gone the Bannon route. He's not done that. In fact, you know, like you compare to Steve Bannon, Cipollone's got a lot better basis to try to claim either attorney-client privilege or executive privilege, right? I mean, Bannon, not even an employee of the government, right? Totally no basis for any kind of privilege claim. Cipollone, as soon as he gets the subpoena, Wham! He's in there testifying for eight and a half hours. So, whatever his motivation, doesn't look good for Donald Trump. And there are any number of things that, you know, Cipollone could have testified about, right? So, we know that Pat Cipollone was talking to Cassidy Hutchinson, who is, you know, probably, what, the most senior aide to Mark Meadows, but nonetheless merely an aide to Mark Meadows, and so, it, I, you know, I think he was kind of just going around telling anybody he could, look, we can't do this thing at the Capitol. That whole thing, we, we can't do that. Um, I mean, that would be consistent with what Cassidy Hutchinson 
uh, said in her testimony. Uh, allow me a brief quote. I'll just read it rather than uh, using a recording. Cassidy Hutchinson. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked onto West Exec that morning, and Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. Liz Cheney. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? Cassidy Hutchinson. In the days leading up to the 6th, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the Electoral Count. I, I, I'm sorry for giggling, but again, this is so, uh, you know, this is Chief White House Counsel, right? And he's concerned with multiple felonies. And he's apparently telling anybody who will listen, we can't do this, we're going to get charged, we can't do this, we're going to get charged. So I would love to know if he testified to that. Right, and this is why I think he's he's a good witness. Uh, he's going to be the kind of witness they're going to be able to use his testimony on video, um, and it, it's definitely going to come up because you know they've got seven hours of material at least, and uh, you know I don't know if he's in basically just the mood where he's trying to cover up himself, trying to redeem himself, do pull a Bob Bar, but. Again, it would appear that he testified truthfully. And pretty much anyone who's going to be testifying truthfully who had access to Trump is probably going to be incriminating Trump. Because guess what? Trump was doing bad things pretty much in the weeks leading up to January 6th and certainly on January 6th itself. Which leads us to uh, another subject, which is suddenly, okay, so you have this uh, chain of events where Cassidy Hutchinson testifies, and then for some reason, magically, um, you've got Pat Cipollone, sorry, Pat Cipollone, willing to testify. And now, over the weekend, Steve Bannon and Stuart Rhodes, Elmer Rhodes, are willing to testify? Like, and the difference is, though, of course, that I believe... This is a bit of a red herring. I'm not going to take a long time to, to really explain this. Of course, Bannon has a court date on July 18th. So he's already facing uh, contempt charges. And this is just a delaying tactic. He'd already requested that his uh, trial date be delayed until sometime in October. Um, right, so they're going to be moving into jury selection again. Uh, he's he's setting all these like conditions where oh well I I want to testify live, um and I want to have the freedom to cross examine the people who are questioning me I mean, absolutely bizarre. So he's trying to set these terms and conditions that he has no power to set. So there it's been reported that he's going to testify, uh, but I do not think that the committee is going to accept uh, his terms and conditions. So it'll probably be video testimony because as you've noted probably presumably they haven't taken any testimony from uncooperative witnesses instead the members of the committee have their own notes they have teleprompters and as as do the witnesses and the witnesses are mainly speaking publicly to testimony that they had already delivered privately in depositions so if bannon is going to speak 
presumably is going to be under the same conditions as other witnesses. Um, he's not going to get this sort of, you know, live platform. He's not going to have a chance to have his attorneys start cross-examining members of Congress. I mean, it's bizarre. I honestly, at this point, still think it's not going to happen. This is a red herring. Um, he's offered up this bizarre argument that, well, he has executive privilege, but this is entirely novel. And even though you've got Carl Nichols, I believe, is the, the judge in the case, um, I don't think it, it's, it's going to be well received because he's trying to say that as a uh, just an ordinary person who's you know a member of the public has some conversations with President Trump, somehow that constitutes uh, executive privilege. That's an entirely novel claim. That kind of claim of executive privilege has never stood up in court before. Um, at this point, I think it's worthwhile uh, for them to just go ahead and move forward with trial date. Like, I, I don't, whatever terms and conditions Bannon wants to set now, it's too late. He's had his chance months ago. It's apparent they've got all kinds of other witnesses. They don't need Bannon. Uh, at this point, you know, he's made his bed. Let him lie in it. He's in this weird kind of delaying game. He's making these legal arguments that are nonsensical. Just let the, that legal process go ahead. That's the process that Bannon has chosen to date. And unless he's going to, like, completely turn state's evidence on Donald Trump, which I don't think we have any reasonable expectation that he is going to do, then, you know, again, uh, there's really not a point in his testimony. Similarly, Stuart Rhodes. Now, it is kind of interesting, to, the sequence in which this is gone. Why is it that suddenly, you know, Hutchinson testifies, okay, fine, then Cipollone testifies, and then, boom, Bannon wants to testify, Rhodes wants to testify. So that is odd. So Cipollone may be privy to some things that we don't know, which I'll, probably, I'll talk about a little bit later. So... You know, I, I don't think that Cipollone is going to be like a point of contact uh, for the Oath Keepers. Uh, nonetheless, you never know. He might be privy to some things that make President Trump or former President Trump look very bad. So, you know, with, of course, again, Bannon, for him, it's entirely understandable. You know, the 18th looms large. He's trying to weasel out of it and do his normal Trumpist delaying strategy. Um, Rhodes, you know, again, wants to just testify prime time uh, without any kind of filter, without having a pre-recorded deposition. Uh, that is just a non-starter. The committee's never going to go for that. Um, he has a, a terrorist network that goes across the country. Uh, you would not allow the leader of any other terrorist network to speak you know, I mean, again, he's in pretrial detention for a reason. So you're not going to give them this national platform to just speak out on any top topic that they want. Uh, you know, that's just not a thing. I mean, it, it's dangerous, right? He could speak directly to his followers and say, hey, spring me from jail. You know, that's one of the things that is definitely not going to happen. So even though... The upshot of it is, even though it's made some big splash in the press, I don't think either Steve Bannon or Stuart Rhodes is going to be testifying before the committee, ultimately. 
Now, again, with Bannon, there's been some contradictory reports of like, well, you know, he's agreeing to the terms. I don't think he will. I honestly do not think that he is going to agree to the terms of the committee. And I certainly don't think the committee is going to agree to his terms. All right. So what I'd like to do is do a kind of a, a prelude to uh, the show on Tuesday. Well, rather the show, the hearing on Tuesday. Now, of course, as we've established, each of the committee hearings is led by Benny Thompson and Vice Chair Cheney, Chairman Thompson, Vice Chair Cheney, and, uh, you know, again, generally bipartisan there, right? Um, but there's also a lead questioner. So someone who's heading up one of the different groups, one of the different teams, one of the different investigative arms. Um, and this time there's going to be two. So it's going to be headed up by Jamie Raskin of Maryland and Stephanie Murphy of California. Sorry, Stephanie Murphy of Florida, not California. Um, in, in any event, so that's kind of interesting. So it implies that there's going to be two. There's going to be testimony from two different teams or investigative units of the committee, and it's, I thought it'd be worthwhile taking a look back at what the teams are. So you've got the gold team, the purple team, the red team, the blue team, and the green team. So I'm not sure who's in charge of, of which team. Um, now, I know I've gone over this. I'll go over it really briefly uh, right now. Uh, the gold team itself, well, that, that was uh, step two, three, and four. So the gold team was a team that was looking at the stuff on replacing Jeff Rosen with Jeff Clark. Uh, the, the plot to have Pence replace uh, electoral votes. Um, the, the plot to pressure state election officials and state legislatures. That was all the gold team stuff. And so I guess what I would like to say is what we need to do now is to look to the silences, right? So we've seen that there's five teams, they have, they're functionally subdivided, they have different subject matter, and uh, we can impute a, a certain amount of functional subdivision with regard to the individual steps that Cheney outlined as part of her uh, seven-step plan for understanding the insurrection. Now, as I've talked about before, changing the order of the hearings and adding hearings uh, has Kind of messed up the schedule a little bit conceptually, but I thought it would be worthwhile to once again just quickly go over the seven steps. So step one, President Trump engaged in a massive effort to spread false and fraudulent information to the American public, claiming the 2020 election was stolen from him. Step two, President Trump corruptly planned to replace the acting attorney general so that the Department of Justice would support his fake election claims. Step three, President Trump corruptly pressured Vice President Pence to refuse to count certified electoral votes in violation of the U.S. Constitution and the law. Step four, President Trump corruptly pressured state election officials and state legislators to change election results. Step five, President Trump's legal team and other Trump associates instructed Republicans in multiple states to create false electoral slates and transmit those slates to Congress and the National Archives. Step six, President Trump summoned and assembled 
a violent mob in Washington and directed them to march on the U.S. Capitol. Step 7. As the violence was underway, President Trump ignored multiple pleas for assistance and failed to take immediate action to stop the violence and instruct his supporters to leave the Capitol. So the final two sessions um, are going to be on both 6 and 7. Now, Step 7 had a lot of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony in it. And I believe that we're going to actually, on Thursday, also see a lot more videotaped testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. If they don't call her again live, right? She might actually appear again live and in person. We don't know. So, again, look at the silences. Look at the functional subdivisions where we haven't really heard a lot from them, right? So, we've heard pretty extensively from the gold team. We've, uh, that's, again... Um, looking, you know, step two, three, and four. We haven't really heard nearly as much from the red team. Red team is looking at the organizers and at the Stop the Steal movement. Now, if I'm right with regard to this hearing being about Trump assembling the mob more than just focusing on the Oath Keepers, which, you know, is something I may be wrong about. A lot of press coverage has focused on the Oath Keepers, for example, and that they're going to spend quite some time, apparently, at the hearing on Tuesday about that. I, at, at this point, again, with all the court cases, I'm a little more interested in uh, assembling the mob generally, but, you know, there's potential for new information, especially with regard to links between the Oath Keepers and uh, central organizers, which we'll talk about in a moment. Nonetheless, I'm expecting to see some red team stuff, right? And so, also green team. That's the one they're looking at the financing. And we haven't seen a lot with regard to the financing. So, I'm going to now do a, go into a little bit of depth into um, Jamie Raskin's appearance on Sunday. Because, again, I think this was probably the most detailed explanation uh, or, you know, by the promotional tour things they've done in order to promote a committee hearing. This one was the most detailed, and I think it deserves a little time to, to unpack what Raskin actually said. Now, I thought Raskin did a good job in his appearance, and it's pretty clear, if you listen to him explain, again, they're staying on message, working with the seven-step plan, trying to paint a relatively simple story about, obviously, a very complex series of events. But Raskin does, I think, one of the best sort of jo jobs of summing up where we are to date. Well, we're going to continue the story of uh, Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow the 2020 presidential election. And uh, at the last hearings, we showed how lots of doors were uh, closing on him if not all the way, at least part of the way, within the state legislatures. That didn't work for him. Uh, the Department of Justice mini-coup didn't really work for him. The attempt to get DOJ to say that the election was corrupt had not come through. The effort to intimidate election officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia uh, had not succeeded. But now he was turning his attention to January the 6th. And... We're going to get to uh, use a lot of Mr. Cipollone's 
testimony to corroborate other things we've learned along the way. Uh, he was um, the White House counsel at the time. He was aware of every major move, I think, that Donald Trump was making to try to overthrow the 2020 election and essentially seize the presidency. And so uh, I considered his testimony valuable. So, so hopefully we'll get some comment from Cipollone about, you know, whether or not he was going around telling people in the White House, we can't do this, we can't do this OTR movement, this is a bad idea, we're going to get charged with every crime under the book, uh, in the book. Now, Raskin also said something which I thought uh, kind of, because everyone seemed to think, oh, now it's always about the last hearing, right? It's like, oh, well, we learned more about this thing that we, we learned in the last hearing. Um, and Raskin makes it clear that, no, we're, we're moving on. We're going to learn some new stuff in this hearing. Well, um, one of the things that people are going to learn is the fundamental importance of a meeting that took place in the White House uh, on December the 18th. And uh, on that day, the group of lawyers, of outside lawyers, who have been denominated Team Crazy by people, uh, in and around the White House, uh, came in uh, to try to urge several new courses of action, including the seizure of voting machines around the country. Um, and so some of the people involved in that uh, were Sidney Powell. Um, Rudy Giuliani was around uh, for part of that discussion. Michael Flynn was around for that. Uh, but against this team crazy were an inside group of lawyers who essentially wanted the president at that point to acknowledge that he had lost the election uh, and were far more willing to accept uh, the reality of his defeat at that point. So, so there will be there will be other uh, witnesses coming. Um, witnesses who were at the December 18, 2020 meeting. Uh, First-hand witnesses. No, no, there will be testimony about that. Uh, that there will be other kinds of evidence submitted about that. But there will be other witnesses, and I'm afraid I'm not authorized to disclose oh, who those witnesses are at this point. Anyway. So, you get that. This, I think, you know, people talked about Cassidy Hutchinson being a surprise witness. She wasn't. Uh, it was fairly, it had been clear for weeks that she had been providing valuable testimony. Um... But Raskin is floating the possibility, I believe, of actual surprise witnesses. Now, we do know that there's a couple of names have been floated. Jason Van Tattenhove, uh, who is, uh, was affiliated with the Oath Keepers up until 2017. I won't bother you with his whole bio or story. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, as you know, we've become familiar with the Oath Keepers narrative, Elmer Stewart Rhodes is lazy, and so he doesn't want to write his own content. And at some point, he gets this guy who is uh, apparently interviewing him for some kind of journalistic thing and um, basically recruits him to write, like, all the Oath Keepers material for years uh, until, like everyone affiliated with Rhodes, he appears to, you know, uh, get burned out or burned through. Uh, or had a, and had a falling out with Rhodes. Now, it's Curry's choice if he testifies in person. We know he testified uh, with videotape testimony, I believe, in March. But um, 
you know, he won't be able to testify, I believe, directly to, like, what happened on January 6th, obviously. But, you know, there is a possibility that he may be able to testify to, oh, he's connected with Roger Stone. Oh, he has uh, Scott Perry's phone number in in his phone. Uh, some, although he wouldn't have known who Scott Perry was back in 2017. Again, we don't know. So, um, you know, that's one possibility. I, I think it could just be that he's a, he might just be an extremely cooperative witness. Um, but again, you know, to my mind, not the most interesting witness unless he can draw a direct line between the Oath Keepers and people in the Trump administration. And that may be why he's there. And the other person is Sarah Matthews, the former deputy press secretary who resigned on January 6th. So remember, I developed this typology early on, right? There were, I think, some people who were legitimately disgusted at what Trump did and failed to do on January 6th. Um, so she's going to be brought in. We don't know what she saw, right? Uh, we do, you know, we, we know Bannon, uh, you know, uh, wants to come in now. Is it related to this? I don't know. We know Rhodes, again, who knows why there's a sudden expressed, if not actual, willingness to talk. But that's why I, I look, that's the lead for me, okay? Jamie Raskin is saying that there will be other witnesses. And when we talk about the work of the green team, for example, and the work of the red team, you know, we haven't seen a lot of that stuff, right? So, you know, it could be someone who's going to testify about the meeting. Someone like an Eric Hirschman uh, would be great. He's been a great witness so far. So it could also be someone we haven't seen before. Now, uh, this, for many of you, I think, will be exciting to hear Raskin specifically talking about Powell, Giuliani, and Flynn. Right, so I don't think it's an accident. We're gonna we're gonna hear some more about that. Uh, we're gonna hear more about the December eighteenth meeting, and I think we're gonna hear like you know basically how that's the bat signal, right? How that you we've had these uh, sort of trial runs, dry runs. The Proud Boys are ready to go, um, and you know I would like to hear more information about you know some of the financial stuff, right now. One of my kind of dark horse candidates for surprise witness would be Dustin Stockton. Dustin Stockton has offered some absolutely great evidence, and we're finally getting to the red team. Stockton has offered evidence on Caroline Wren, for example, talking about what she told him in the Willard War Room and what groups, you know, basically that... Um, the rally itself, she raised $3 million, but the rally only cost something like 300000 So where did the rest of the money go? And Stockton talked to her, and she said, well, I parked this money here, and I gave this money to, to this group. So, you know, looking at some of the actual groups, right, like TPUSA, for example, and whether or not they use any of the money that Caroline Wren gave them to, you know, again, because she's a fundraiser, right, um, to bust people in, or to catapult the propaganda. So that would be interesting to see uh, if that happens. Next, Raskin's asked about the war room at the Willard and other hotels, Trump, um, and what was going on, and whether or not we're going to learn anything about that in the hearing. And uh, I think it's interesting that I, he doesn't seem to focus as much on that, but he focuses on some of the personnel, and
is going to redirect a little bit back to that December 18th meeting, and he makes some very big promises about what we're going to learn about that. Well, I think your question practically answers itself. Um, Donald Trump was, of course, the central figure who set everything into motion. He was the person, Rob, who identified January 6th as the date for the big protest. And he announced that in his tweet in the middle of the night on December 19th after uh, a crazy meeting, one that has been described as the craziest meeting in the entire Trump presidency, ended December 18th, and uh, Mark Meadows escorted Rudy Giuliani out the door. It sort of ended at that point. And then just an hour or two later, Donald Trump sent out the tweet that would be heard around the world, the first time in American history when a president of the United States called a protest against his own government, in fact, to try to stop the counting of electoral college votes in a presidential election he had lost. Absolutely unprecedented. Nothing like that had ever happened before. So people are going to hear the story of that tweet and then the explosive effect it had in Trump world and specifically among the domestic violent extremist groups, the most dangerous political extremists in the country at that point. So we're going to hear about, you know, um, I guess more of this kind of bat signal idea, the stand back and stand by. Or what I'm hoping is perhaps there's, you know, more evidence of some direct communication. So, again, I refer you back to the Exhibit 10 and the Vallejo material. They were working on this stuff back in, as early as November 9th. And uh, there were contacts between the Oath Keepers and, you know, again, in the person of Kelly Sorrell, um, Rudy Giuliani, uh, and the RNC. So bringing that all together, that would be great. Um, and it could be, again, with this idea of surprise witnesses, um, what if someone like William Todd Wilson, right, who was the person who gave them the transcript uh, of that, not the transcript, sorry, the actual recording of the November 9th meeting, I think it would be great if we actually got to see some of that material from the November 9th meeting. Now, the transcript that was entered into evidence is apparently a transcript of a video recording of some kind. So, you know, that may be one of the things that we're going to see. And I think that Exhibit 10 is explosive. I've only read it. Um, but to see that live, to see that stuff about the pods, especially, going out, um, would be explosive. Because, it, again... It would show that, you know, they were waiting on December 19th for this kind of messaging from Trump. They were ready right after the election to engage in political violence in the support of Trump. And so in summation, Raskin is asked finally about whether or not he still agrees with his assessment that the January 6th hearings would blow the roof off the house. Now, I, I think that the roof is pretty well blown already. Uh, nonetheless, Raskin seemed to think there's going to be, there's, there's more blowing left to do. Not literally, certainly, but um, I think what I meant is that when you add all of this up together, it is the greatest political offense against the Union by a President of the United States in our history. 
Nothing comes close to it. It, it you know, the a criminal offense, the, the attempt, the attempt to overthrow the result of a presidential election through a political coup, and the mobilization of an armed violent mob um, cannot really be compared to anything else a president has done. Uh, it makes the Watergate break-in look like the work of Cub Scouts. Uh, so, um, so that's a good line. Again, uh, making the Watergate break-in look like the work of Cub Scouts. But again, goes back to uh, Cheney's seven-part plan, right? The mobilization of an armed, violent mob. And I realize I keep calling it Cheney's plan. She was the one who first uh, released it. It's presumably the committee's plan. It is the, the rubric uh, that they're going to use and have been using so that we can understand, so that the American people can understand the nature of the plot. So, again... Those are the people who are going to be testifying, presumably, and there's a lot of questions, right? So, my mind, I keep looking at, okay, we haven't heard from the Green Team. I want to hear from them. I would like to hear something about um, efforts to perhaps funnel money to the mob to bring them in, because we know that there were donations going on. So, who gave $1,000 to the North Texas Patriot Boys so that they could go and attack cops on January 6th? Uh, will we hear from Dustin Stockton at some point? I believe that his evidence is extremely telling. Are we going to see video testimony from Exhibit 10? That's the November 9th recorded Zoom session where you have the description by Kelly Sorrell of these various pods with whom the Oath Keepers are working closely. We've seen none of that so far. We know that the government has video evidence that would be awfully compelling. Now, it would be interesting to know whether or not, is it just a question of the, the committee not having this? Is this only being used in a seditious conspiracy case and the committee doesn't have access to it? You know, um, that that's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. And at some point, uh, I think it would be great if they could talk about the Republican Attorney General's Association, RAGA, Talk about the Tea Party Express, Turning Point USA, uh, the Rule of Law Defense Fund, who were doing robocalls to try to get Trumpists to attack the Capitol, and uh, some kind of you know testimony about what has been a months-long investigation, hope, presumably, hopefully deep into the finances of Caroline Wren, Stop the Steal, and all these associated groups. Because we've heard nothing on that. And, you know, it's just part... I mean, there may be financial crimes in play here. You know, if you're telling people you're using money for one thing and you're actually using it for body armor and guns, that's problematic, or at least it ought to be. So I still have a lot of questions about what they're going to talk about. Obviously, you know, again, there are some witnesses I would like to hear from. I'm a little surprised at the extent to which this is going to be Oath Keeper-centric. Um, I'd hope that perhaps we would be talking more about the normies and the effort to get them to the Capitol, uh, as well as groups affiliated with Stop the Steal, all the various financial crimes and the, you know, the coordination uh, between the central planners 
and ultimately the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th, right? You know, who's the person, where did they come up with the organizational framework for all these flaggers? Where did they come up with the, the organizational framework for the people with the microphones, you know? Um, but very exciting to hear uh, Michael Flynn's name mentioned in, from Jamie Raskin. Very exciting to hear Sidney Powell's name. Very excited to hear Roger Stone's name. Uh, very excited to hear Steve Bannon's name. All these being discussed now, finally, in the January 6th hearings. So we're getting closer to the center of the circle, and it remains to be seen, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen on Tuesday. Again, I have my theories. There are things that I would like to see, um, but, you know, you don't know. And I, I think that's part of what, you know, is causing Trump to freak out on Truth Social. And it may be part of what's motivating uh, Stuart Rhodes and Steve Bannon in their lame attempts to try to dictate terms to the committee, uh, which were both shot down, right? I recorded uh, the, the first segment last night. Um, they're basically, the, the committee, uh, you know, Raskin, as you heard, just said, well, uh, we, th these are not, this is not how we do it. Um, and, you know, that's the same terms that they offered everybody. You do video testimony, you come in, you do your deposition, and then if you, if they're going to call you as a public witness, you can testify in support of that testimony, right? But you're, you're, you're not get, just getting a microphone and going to be able to talk to anybody. Um, you know, that's for your podcast, Steve. You can do that in your podcast. January 6th committee isn't going to get turned into a podcast. And maybe we'll learn about the other stuff that Wilson gave, which, of course, is that information that Stuart Rhodes called somebody uh, toward the end of the day after the crowd had been beaten back and tried to call somebody who had Trump's ear. And we don't know who this person is, but that person didn't take the call. So if we're looking at links between the central plotters and the various militia groups, um, those are the things I'm looking for. Surprise witnesses, you know. Could they give us someone like William Todd Wilson? Could they give us someone like Dustin Stockton? I don't know. Uh, but I, I think that Raskin is floating the possibility of surprise witnesses. Uh, are we going to get someone uh, like, let's say, Hirschman? Certainly not Mark Meadows. Although, if Mark Meadows would be the best surprise witness, right? But uh, are we going to get test? We're, we're going to get great testimony about the December 18th meeting. Who's going to be the witness there? Will there be a surprise live witness? So, we'll see. But a day left to go. Remember, 1 p.m. was originally at 10, and they've now changed it to 1 p.m., and also the, the primetime hearing is on Thursday. All right. Quick episode this week. I want to thank you so much, and uh, get your popcorn. Get ready.